I'm Catherine Beauty. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today! And today, this is a very exciting episode because the Inky Phoenix, my new book club on Instagram, our guest is the April Pick, the author of The Hazelwood, Melissa Albert. And if you're out there listening and you're thinking, what is the Inky Phoenix? You should go find out because it's a beautiful book club that my wife started. And actually, I'd love to share the impetus behind the idea, the name, the Inky Phoenix, in Please case do. anyone's wondering. I So if you're not sure what a phoenix is, and I don't mean like the, the city in Arizona, the, the mythological bird, which anyone who has read Harry Potter, I'm sure you're familiar with a phoenix. The order of the phoenix. The order of the phoenix. Um so a phoenix is this mythological bird that bursts into flames. Not every day, you know, like at the end of something, it bursts into flames, it falls into ashes, and then it always rises from the ashes. So it's this, it's kind of like an Ouroboros. It's like the, the eternal life, the constant cycle of rebirth. Wait, does it spontaneously burst into flames? It's like having a bad day and then poof. I mean, I, it, that, that seems like a programming bug. Right. <laughs> Somebody put me in a fireproof bubble please uh but the good news is you always come back so it's it's a bit of uh the fountain of youth except for or a version of hell or a version (laughs) of hell anyway so it always comes back to life so the the reason that i wanted to name the book club the inky phoenix is i have that same feeling when you're reading this amazing book and then you get to the end and you're so pained to the concept of that book being over that it does feel like a small death every time until you open up the next book. Holy cow! Where it comes back I, to life again. I've actually not heard the full oh, really? reasoning behind the name. And she lives with and me, guys. it's fucking genius. Oh, thanks, baby. That's so smart. That is kind of how you feel when you finish a book that you love and you're like, I'll never find another. <laughs> right? Exactly. So that's, and I thought that was the perfect thing for a book club because ideally every month I'm bringing them the rebirth of the phoenix, something that they're going to oh, feel the power and fall in love Your brain with. is so big. <laughs> My wife loves me. So uh, the author we're having today, The Hazelwood, if you have not read it, it's a phenomenal novel. It's the first in two series. The second one is The Night Country, which just came out this past January. Both New York Times bestselling novels. And it's a very dark reimagining of classic fairy tales. And I don't even mean Brother Grimm's Dark. I mean, she really takes it to the next level, in my opinion. And I like, so when we have Melissa Albert on, she's obviously, as Catherine's saying, the guest on the show today. And I love also that we kind of, we tiptoe into just like the publishing process too. And also about how, because she's a, she was a debut novelist with um, the Hazelwood. Hazelwood. Yeah. And so, we, you know, try, I try to talk to her a little bit about like, what the, the like dreamlike scenario that must have felt to her. And she also said this thing that she was like with a debut novel. She's like, I was told that I just, I put every cool thought I've ever had yeah. <laughs> into this book, right? You never know if you'll get another chance. So any like witty retort that you think a character should say or any like observation, it's like you just pack it all into that one book and then it's wrapped in this like beautiful fairy tale it's package. It's like the biggest Italian hoagie ever. Yeah, it, but but meatless, of course. Of course, or a mufalata. A mufalata. So we also talked to her about what her favorite fairy tales are, obviously, and we want you to think about that as well. And I was thinking about 
one of my favorite fairy tales growing up, and that was Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen, which I think many of us probably grew up, you know, I, no, see, this you is, were worried that you thought I was talking about Snow White. Yeah, I mean, I can say with a certain degree of certitude that I did not read any fairy tales growing up. Unless, like, Casey at the Bat was a fairy tale. TV show. I'm sure you watched animations. No? I mean, I saw all the Disney movies that everyone our generation saw, and if they're fairy tales, and they are, is The Little Mermaid a fairy tale? My baby was too busy chewing Big League Chew. I had a big wad of great Big League Chew. Sometimes <laughs> they would just be Skittles. I don't know if anyone out there relates would to this. Would you spit Skittles? or Little tomboys out there. Wait, that's important. Did you swallow them, or did no, you no, spit no. them out? No, no, no. I just mean, I didn't care about the spitting act of no. being a Big League player. It was just player. having the big cheek. It was having the big cheek, and, and having something desirable act as the big cheek. <laughs> and gotta tell you, a big old handful of skittles that you suck down and you put there that's a treat oh that's a treat all right so get us back on track because <clears throat> gather around children i'm going to read you a tale um, i'm gonna read actually the first page or two of the snow queen because i read this the other day it's been a long time and i was really struck by um the conceit of the opening and this mirror and how i feel like it's applicable to modern day so this is directly from Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen. <coughs> Look out, we're about to begin. And when we reach the end of the story, we'll know more than we know now. All because of an evil troll. He was one of the very worst, the devil himself. One day he was in a really good mood, for he had just finished making a mirror that could shrink the image of whatever was good and beautiful down to almost nothing, while anything worthless and ugly was magnified and would look even worse. In this mirror, the loveliest landscapes looked like boiled spinach, and the kindest people looked hideous or seemed to be standing on their heads with their stomachs missing. Faces looked so deformed that you couldn't recognize them. And if someone had just a single freckle, you could be sure that it would spread until it covered both nose and mouth. That was the great fun, the devil said. If anyone had a kind, pious thought, the mirror would begin to grin, and the troll devil would burst out laughing at his clever invention. Everyone who attended his troll school, for he ran one, spread the news that a miracle had taken place. Now, for the first time, they claimed, you could see what the world and its people were really like. The students ran all over the place with the mirror until there was not a single country or person left to disfigure it. They even wanted to fly all the way up to heaven to make fun of the angels and God himself. The higher they flew, they flew with the mirror, the more it chuckled until finally they could barely hold on to it. They flew higher and higher, closer to God and the angels, but suddenly the mirror shook so hard with laughter that it flew out of their hands and crashed down to earth, where it shattered into a hundred million billion pieces and even more than that. Once it broke, the mirror caused more unhappiness than ever, for some of the shards weren't even the size of a grain of sand. And they blew around all over the world. If a tiny particle got in your eye, it stayed there and made everything look bad. Or else it only let you see what was wrong with things. For every microscopic particle had the exact same power as the entire mirror. A little splinter from that mirror landed in the hearts of some people, and that was what really and that was really dreadful, because then their hearts became as hard as a chunk of ice. 
The shards were so large at times that you could use them as window panes, but you wouldn't want to see anything of your friends thought through a window like that. Other pieces were turned into eyeglasses, and that caused a lot of trouble because people put them on, thinking that they would see better or judge more fairly. The evil troll laughed until his sides split, and that really tickled him in a delightful way. But outside, tiny bits of glass were still flying through the air. Now let's hear what happened next. Oh, cliffhanger! Okay, so that's really cool. Probably the first time I've ever read a fairy tale outside of the Hazelwood, which I read. (laughs) But you know what's cool about that fairy tale as I was listening to it was that a lot of people do have that tiny little shard. Stuck in their hearts. Stuck in their hearts. Okay, or the image of the eyeglasses that you put on right. it changes the way you see things. A lot of people do have it, but when you take it outside of the context of that fairy tale, and I know it's not a true fairy tale. Well, are, are there true fairy tales? Maybe this Let's is see. why we get in bad moods. It's because of the devil's mirror that's yeah. lodged into our... I just think that when you take it, when you take just maybe people looking at the, for looking for the negative in other people, mm-hmm. they can justify it to themselves. You know, they're like, well, like I've had bad luck and that person is getting more than they deserve. And like, you got to be cynical. You got to whatever you, excuses you justify. And if you don't look at the whole of it, you think, OK, maybe I am justified in looking at things this way. But then when you put it inside of a fairy tale mm-hmm. like that, and you're like, oh, this is the work of a troll. Yes, the and divisiveness is, yes. that's created from it. And you look at our country right now with all the divisiveness, and it makes you wonder, wow, did some of that devil's mirror get turned into the lens of the cameraman's photo on news? Like, was it something mm. that all of our phones were encased in, you know? Well, maybe some of, our, uh, some of it does have to do with our phones. <laughs> You're right. It, it, all uh, that mirror got turned cool. into iPhones. And I'm assuming that was written this year, right? Oh, yeah, that was, like, trademark 2018. Oh, man. That's awesome. So, anyway, and then that is just the beginning of The Snow Queen, by the way. So I highly recommend, if you have a copy of Hans Christian Andersen, the wonderful Dane, And if you, you want to read a modern fairy tale... Right, you're in luck because we have the author who's coming on. Let's do it right now. Melissa Albert is the founding editor of Barnes & Noble Teen Blog and the managing editor of barnesandnoble.com. She has written for Time Out Chicago, Spark Life, MTV, and McSweeney's and is also the author of the New York Times bestselling The Hazelwood, The Night Country, and the upcoming Tales from the Hinterland. Okay, I am extremely excited about this interview. We are here with Melissa Albert. Hello, Melissa. Hello. Um, She is cooking at home in her Brooklyn house, and so if you hear some bubble, bubble, boil, toil, and trouble in the background, (laughs) it's not one of her characters. She is actually making her own stew. Um, I, I... I so I just wanted to share with our listeners. I was um, I was actually getting my hair done. Uh, this was back when we did things in public, <laughs> and I was reading a blog. This was before the Night Country, your follow up to the Hazelwood came out, and it was on you know some list of most anticipated young adult novels coming out. And um, th- uh, the thing that actually drew me to not only this, this description was the cover of your book, 
And Melissa, I think I mentioned this to you. John Connolly wrote this book called The Book of Lost Things, which is one of my favorite books of all time. Because when I was reading your book, I'm like, oh my God, these books are so simpatico. I mean, they should be, you know, it's like the peanut butter to your jelly. These books are really meant to be together. I realized I was a very low reach as a descriptor and your descriptors are way better than that. We'll get to that later. But But I edit mine. That was on the fly. That was really good. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Like they'll get better by the end of the conversation. So I was just so drawn to that because it, it was reminded me of one of my favorite books. And, um, and I reached out to you or, or no, no, no. I think I reposted something. I, it, whatever happened, you sent me something on social media and you were so sweet. For tour, and it was so lovely to connect with you. I was like sitting in an airport heading home from night country tour. And I, I think I blushed immediately when you responded. I was like, oh my gosh, like how generous that she, she's writing me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I fangirled. Um, and it just you've been so generous with your, your time and offerings. And we're so excited to have you be the pick for the Inky Phoenix and to, to get to talk with you. Um, so excited to talk with you guys today. It's just so nice to take a break from um, thinking about the world and talk about books for a minute. Yes. Well, on that point, so since we are currently recording this on quarantine, hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, maybe we won't be. Um, is it affecting your writing process? Or are you allowing a little break for yourself right now? Oh, that's a great question. I'm, I'm finding, so I'm in edits right now for book three, uh, which means that I can kind of poke at something that already exists. And I'm finding that's extremely transporting and it's like a lucky thing to get lost in. I think if I was at a different stage, like um, a more intensive stage of kind of, it's like that spelunking, like how deeply can you allow yourself to get out of your your physical headspace to actually get work done? I don't know how deeply I could go if I was trying to draft right now. So I, I'm in a lucky stage and I do have my kid home from school. And yes, that changes my process. Yeah, I'm actually curious because um, we, Catherine and I saw like a meme on Instagram or I think Sarah Bareilles re-Instagrammed it and it was basically saying, you know, now now that we have this quarantine, you don't need to write the great American novel. You don't need to get in the best shape of your life. Like you don't need to start keep, like even though you're confined in your house, you don't need to produce, 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 which really like really spoke to my soul. Cause I, I think even like in the first couple of days of, of quarantine, I was like, all right, Catherine, we're going to write a book together. We're going to make use of this time. <laughs> it was so in intense, the house. Melissa, so intense. And that's like, <laughs> I, I really feel like in some ways it's reflective of someone's personality, the way they're reacting to being forced to either, you know, social distance or quarantine. Like what, what type of person would you be in, in general in a quarantine? Would you be like, I have to write, I have to create. Well, I'm like, I'm producing a lot of stew, I guess. I find it very comforting <laughs> right now. Like I'm producing, I produce rosemary crackers. So yes, I think okay. feeding my family. Um, I guess if I didn't have a kid, I'd like, I feel like I'm telling myself, man, if I didn't have a kid, I would be catching up on all these things. I would be like writing the five projects I've been putting on the back burner. But the reality is probably what it is, which is I would be refreshing Twitter 50,000 times and then quarantining my phone away from my body for an hour just to like rest my eyes. We are trying to listen to more podcasts right now just to get our eyes a break from screens after like news refreshing all day. So if I get out of this, you know, well and with a really long list of podcasts I love, I think that'll that'll be productive enough. Yes, I hear you. So, okay, so you're in edits. Is this for the Tales of Hinterland? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yes, I, I'm excited, in case you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I could very easily make this entire podcast about 
chit-chatting about fairy tales with you, which I will try to deeply do to avoid as much as possible, or maybe as much as possible. <laughs> you were a kid. You are you like a fairy tale lover from way back? Oh yeah. Yes, I have the, the full unabridged Grimm uh, Brothers Grimm next to my bed. You know, I mean, it's just something that has always been a part of me. And just so forever. you know, I'm like the complete opposite. I had like <laughs> Sports Illustrated, <laughs> and I had like you know Michael Jordan posters. Actually, that's not true. It was John Starks and Patrick Ewing. But like, so the idea of fairy tale, like I didn't hear of Brothers Grimm until like the Matt Damon movie. Didn't oh dear. He make a movie or something like that. I anyway, so that just so that's you get a sense of our personalities there. <laughs> that's like me and my best friend. She was like Car Magazine. And I was like, you know, yes, fairy tale collection. <laughs> yes, it's a good yin and yang. Um, but so I, I don't have a specific memory as a child of when I realized how dark the original fairy tales actually were. Um, but, you know, I've always been inexplicably drawn to dark things. And I don't know what that says about my personality. And I don't really care, honestly, because I just like them. And so when I found your book and I, I realized that it was seeped in, in fairy tales and not only fairy tales, but this really deliciously twisted, dark approach, I was like, this is my girl. This is like, I feel like I am simpatico. I found my brethren. Um, and I'm just wondering like what the, what your history was with finding out the, the, the actual truth behind the fairy tales and how much that influenced your writing. Oh, that's so interesting. So like what, at what point I kind of learned that the Disney version is It wasn't not- Disney. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Oh gosh. So early. I mean, okay. So one of my favorite books just from way back is Peter Pan. And I feel like it's one of those books where when you're a kid and you're reading it, you are absolutely comfortable with the world it presents as like a world of childhood. And then when you get older and you read it, you're like, this is brutal. Like this is, this is, it's amazing to me that I can read that book and kind of see this brutality that as a kid, it kind of just read to me, like, that makes sense. This is like justice. This is how the world should work. Like this world kind of built my children. Um, I think when you're young, you kind of accept that things have claws and teeth, right? Like the shadows don't unnerve you. And then when you get older, you're thinking of children through that lens of let's protect the children. But I don't think kid readers want that level of protection, right? Like, I think it's the darker... I do think you have to protect yourself. I definitely, I read up as far as like sexual content when I was very young. And right. I think what I was able to understand didn't, I, it didn't like penetrate really. Like uh, reading Lolita, I did not find it that disturbing as a young person. And then as an older person, I understood what <laughs> it's kind of missing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think fairy tales, I just read the darkest versions I could find from a very early age. And it was always a very you know, comfortable reading for me, like that kind of black and white morality. Kids crave that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I was always a kid with dreams of vengeance. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Most kids kind of are because the world is so unfair and you have such limited options that it's, it's lovely to lose yourself in these worlds where, you know, wickedness is so easy to spot and always goes punished. What, this is really interesting to me because I wanted, I was going to ask you about the reading of fairy tales when you were young versus going back and parachuting into them when you're older. And my gut instinct was going to be that you didn't really understand them when you were young. And then as you were, when you were older, you saw them for what they are, but it actually feels Mm. like maybe something changes in the social socialization of humans for, by how they read the fairy tale. It's almost like when you go back and you see your, you know, your elementary school 
gymnasium, when you're older, you're like, oh my God, like, I can't believe how this world looks different to me now than it did. But so, so I guess the question is like, isn't, is it, isn't it odd to you that as a kid, you read something dark, but it felt normal. And then as an adult, you see it as dark. And that's just, I don't know what the question is in there, but that's fascinating. I think, okay. So when you're young, you're operating with so little information. I remember it feeling to me like every piece of culture that I accrued felt like an authority on the world in some way. So I just kind of, you know, like when your parents tell you something, you take it as true. You don't start to question it till you're a teenager. And that kind of starts dismantling your whole worldview, right. To question your parents. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the same way. Like as I took stories in, I kind of took them at face value and I accepted their, I accepted them as authorities on the world and I, I wasn't thinking about things like authorial intent or prejudice or anything like that. And then reading later, just kind of reading with a totally different mental landscape and like an ability to read critically. I think that's really what changed it. That's so interesting. I'm, I'm actually realizing as we're talking right now, I think the, the first book was Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, where I was like, wow, this is fucked up. You know, where I I studied it in college and just like studying the Jabberwocky and all of that and and how fascinating it was. And as an adult, but I remember watching the cartoon as a little girl. And I remember even as a little girl watching it and think, always thinking like, I feel unsettled when I'm watching (laughs) this show. You know, there was just that feeling in your tummy of like, something feels not quite right. Yes, Absolutely. I've always kind of chased that uneasy feeling. And when I was young, it came from not fully understanding what I was reading. And now it's like, when you can find a writer who can make you a little bit uneasy, it's just, I love that. Like Helena Yayami does that beautifully. She takes like this totally limpid prose and this clearly defined world. And then she like skews it just enough that it feels like you're in a strange place. And I think that's what I love to read. And that's kind of what I tried to write as well. So, so you have the tales of Hinterland coming out and for everyone who's read the Hazelwood or for people who are listening and haven't read any of your works yet, that is the, uh, the book of fairy tales within your story. And which I'm thrilled that you're writing this, by the way, because as soon as I finished the Hazelwood, I was like, God, I want the rest of the book, the, the book within the book. Um, and I saw you put something up on your social feed the other day about a specific book that inspired you to write about the hinterland. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So when I was 20, I was reading, um, Harper's, uh, magazine has that section in the beginning called readings and it's kind of just essays and little pieces kind of plucked from different places. And there was a little piece of an essay, uh, by Peter Davidson called the idea of North. And it was just kind of the concept of North and what that means to people around the world. And, I'm now reading the book and kind of at the beginning, he juxtaposes the line, we're going to the North tonight to we're going to the South tonight. And like what that does to your soul kind of. Mm. And like that idea of North and the way that he describes and the way that he kind of sources different ideas and takes people have had on it and like all forms of art throughout time. It just kind of gives you that feeling of like wind under your heart. You know what I mean? Like that, like late night kind of uprushing, feeling. It's so hard to explain, but it just kind of reading that essay gave me this feeling that I have been holding on to for a long time now. And when I sat down to write the book, that was kind of with me. And I wanted the hinterland, which is the central, you know, hinterland being another word for the North. 
the kind of you know, central fairy tale world around which the duology is built. I wanted it to kind of have that feeling, that like calling from from some upper, unreachable, inhospitable, but enchanting kind of region. So just just to you like ground our listeners in your background, can you can you take us through a little bit about your writing history and whether it was something that you had always wanted to do growing up and how you got to the point of even putting together the Hazelwood? Yeah. Okay. So I start. I started like so many writers. Um, I mean, I, I wrote a little bit when I was a kid. I like to have my mom write stories for me that I would uh, dictate to her. And then I, I like lazily wrote bad poetry throughout high school because um, I you know, fancied myself a, a beat poet. Obviously, you know, so many, <laughs> so many young suburban '90s women did. I, I hope '90s are yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I then. You know, I, I feel like in college, I kind of lost the thread with fiction and I started dipping more into journalism. And after I got out of college, I briefly wrote arts reviews for Time Out. I did like book reviews, theater reviews, some feature stuff. And I did some beat reporting for a little West Side Chicago paper. So I was mostly just doing nonfiction stuff. And then I got this really, really lucky chance in, I want to say 2010. Uh, I was working for Barnes & Noble and they gave me an op- as a freelancer at the time. They gave me the opportunity um, to work on a startup project for fiction development, kind of like an LA entertainment type thing. Mm -hmm. And this is so wild to me, but they gave me a limitless budget to buy young adult novels. And at the time, all I'd ever read in terms of like from this new like kind of golden age of young adult, I'd only read the Hunger Games trilogy and utterly adored it. And with this budget, I you know, took to Barnes and Noble and I bought, I mean, I bought like John Green. I bought, um, who are my earliest ones? Lainey Taylor, Holly Black. Um, Akata, which was a big one that I loved. Um, and I'm assuming you had read Harry Potter too, right? Oh yeah. Okay. I was like, wow, just the Hunger Games? No way. <laughs> I definitely grew up with Harry Potter. Um, and I kind of, this was during like the kind of the paranormal romance moment. It was like about to, no, it was like the apocalypse, uh, post-apocalyptic dystopia paranormal romance were kind of ebbing after this like giant, you know, peak. And I got into YA, I realized it was utterly incredible. And I started kind of aspiring to write my own. And then I did a little bit of write for hire under pseudonyms, writing, you know, people create plots and give it to you to write and try to sell the resulting manuscript. And um, it wasn't until 2014, I think, that I started The Hazelwood and it took me until 2016 to buckle down and finally finish it. And it started out actually as a, it was kind of inspired by um, my first attempt at National Novel Writing Month, which is where you write a novel in a month every November, if you guys have heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it kind of came out of a failed National Novel Writing Month project. I (laughs) repurposed pieces of it that still interested me. And that, that became the Hazelwood. So I read this interview you did where you said that you quote love the immediacy of the teen experience. Like what what do you what do you mean by that? So let's take a book like um, oh let me think I love boarding school books everyone does right let's yep. take a book like Maureen Johnson's incredible truly devious trilogy which is set in this wonderful boarding school. Um, it's versus like Curtis Sittenfeld's Prep. So that's you know it's about a girl at a boarding school who's a teenager, but it's it's very elegiac. 
there's like a nostalgia and a pain to it. It's like very much looking back and I love prep too. Yeah. But it's kind of like that feeling of looking back through wiser eyes on your teen experience or the feeling like a truly devious where it's just carrying you through it. And it's, it's very raw. There's, it's full of firsts. Like when you're a teenager, everything is a first. It's not just about like first kisses and first love. It's like first realization, as I mentioned before, that your parents aren't perfect. First kind of, you know, betrayal by a friend. It's just, it's kind of like that, that sense of becoming, it's the time in your life when you're allowed to lean into it. And, um, oh, my soup's boiling over. Okay, I'm going to turn it well, <laughs> We teed everybody up for that to happen, the so we're all good. Do. My soup is as excited as me to talk about, <laughs> now I've lost my thread. Um, it's, it's that moment when, you know, as an adult, you're not really, I don't know, I feel like you almost are treated like you're new agey if you talk about, like, becoming or growing as an adult or make that like the center of your story. But when you're a teen, it's like allowed and it's just so joyous to kind of get to lean into that stuff. Yeah. Oh, and someone wonderful, um, Neil Schusterman, I asked, I was interviewing him for the BNNY podcast, Rest in Peace. Um, and I asked him, what is it that what makes a book YA to you? Because I was curious because his books include a lot of adult narrators, which would seem to break the rules of YA, but his books are wonderfully YA and I, I adore them. And he said that the one element he feels you can't divorce from YA is an element of hope. Mm-hmm. And I, that's definitely not the case in adult books, but very much I kind of have been interrogating that that idea. And I feel like he's totally right. And I just, I love that about, about the category. And do you think because of all these reasons as you continue to write more novels, which I'm assuming that's something that you're going to continue with, do you think you want to stay in the YA realm or would do you have any aspirations to uh, writing um adult books that sounds weird and different genres different genres (laughs) I'll be sold in adult bookstores um I am definitely sticking with YA but I actually want to write middle grade as well and I just you know middle grade there's something wonderful about the age 12 I think there's a great Stephen King quote about that that I'm now completely escaping me um but 12 is a really magical age and so many middle grade books are set you know, with 12 year old heroes and heroines and some of my favorite books that I, to this day, stand up beautifully, like the Westing game or wrinkle in time or Harriet the oh, Spy. I love a wrinkle in time. Yeah. Yes. yes. Toll booth. Did you read that when oh, you were yes. little? Yes. Oh. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I loved it. I played the spelling bee actually in a, in a school play, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was a phantom toll booth character. Maybe it's a deep cut, but he's in there. Um, yeah. So middle grade, I, I, and I dream of one day being good enough to write a picture book, which I don't know if that'll ever happen, but I'm, I'm reading a lot of them to myself. You mean illustrating it as well? Or no, just the, I mean, a good picture book. You know, I think every parent who is reading a million picture books a day with their kid is like, I wonder if I could do this. And the answer is like, mostly no. Like yeah. the genius picture book is, is a, such a joy. And, you yeah. know, I've so many good and so many bad in the last two and a half years of being a mom. And it's been such a pleasure. Yeah, I think um, Joan Didion has this, I'm not cool, but she writes about how at the start of her career, maybe for Vogue or Vanity Fair, she would write cut lines um, below the picture. I mean, we were talking about cut lines the other day just for our listeners. Yeah, like the one sentence below a picture. And it's similar to what you just said about a children's book. I think probably most people would be like, Oh, a cut line, you know, like, or that one sentence below a picture, like that's easy. I could do that. And she's like, it was the hardest writing I ever did in my whole career. 
Yes, I worked briefly in advertising and trying to boil something down to a tagline is astounding. And then when people see a tagline, they're like, oh, it's so obvious. I could do that. It's like, well, no, it's it's so obvious because it's so good and so hard. So uh, so aside from the the November NaNoWriMo, NaNoWriMo, uh, National Novel Writing Month. Oh. Was the Hazelwood legit your first novel that you wrote or did you have other, like, is there a slush pile of novels that you've written somewhere or was this the first one? I'd written books for hire. So those don't, in my opinion, just because it's other people's kind of plots, characters, worlds. It's, it's really a wonderful exercise and it's a good way for writers to make money. Um, I have a lot of friends who are published under their own name and also still do work for hire. And, um, but as far as my own work, yeah, The Hazelwood was the first thing I finished, but it was not the first thing I started. I would say, God, by this point, I probably have an easy dozen, you know, projects with anywhere from 5,000 to 60,000 words of of writing, uh, but That's not finished. It's that thing. It's like finishing. I know a lot of people talk about this. I think Neil Gaiman has some interesting mm. blog posts on just the power of finishing something because you can start things all day long. Like if I could publish books full of the first chapters of a hundred different books, <laughs> I would be publishing a book a year. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, I got to a point where I was like, you know what, if I'm just going to be writing half novels for the rest of my life, this is going to be very unsatisfying. Even if it's bad, I got to like get to the finish line with something. Yeah. So I want to, I do want to talk more about like process and the, you know, the book selling, selling of the book and the excitement around that. But I did want to talk a little bit about like just inside the Hazelwood. Um, I, I did, I read a couple of your interviews cause I found so much of the way you were talking about the book really interesting. And there, you had this interview where someone was asking you about Alice, your main character in the Hazelwood and how, I don't want to give away plot points, but how, readers could have certain takeaways from Alice's behavior in the book <laughs> for their own lives. Like there was some sort of like broader, you know, message for a reader. And you were very honestly like, well, I didn't like write Alice doing that to be some broader takeaway. Just in retrospect, it looks like, like an it's a beautiful, yeah. It yeah. looks like a beautiful piece of, you know, like art and all of that. So like, so, so how, how do you, how do you react when something like brilliant is pointed out that maybe you didn't specifically intend? You're like, yeah, all the, all the time. I totally intended that. Okay. So the amazing thing is, and I've, I've talked to other people about this, you get to take credit for everything in your book. <laughs> Even if you didn't put it there and someone else's brilliant connection finding brain found it. It's okay. I, I, there's this essay by George Saunders. I think it's in the guardian and I, just references all the time. And I think it's called something like what writers do when they write. And he talks about, it's almost like as you're working, you essentially have an awareness of the tip of the iceberg. So what you're writing is like, maybe seems simple, but what you're actually doing. And I, I love to, you know, put myself with George Saunders, which you know isn't fair to him. That's right. Name check George Saunders. It's good. <laughs> Um, I'm going to, you know, go ahead and, and take, take a page out of his book. Anyway, he talks about, um, you know, you get to take credit for even the stuff you're not conscious you're doing. There is more going on than you're aware of. And I love that idea. And I hope it's true. Um, and I do remember finishing the Hazelwood and sitting down to write the dreaded query letter, which is the thing that you write to get your agent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took me weeks and weeks and weeks. And I went through a million different drafts, sent it to friends 
And I remember when I first sat down to write it, I thought, oh my God, this book is about nothing. Like (laughs) just about nothing. It's like a girl goes on a drive and then there's a house. I don't even, what am I doing? And it, so your elevator pitch was a subpar. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And it took a while for me to, to find the heart of what it was about, but I really don't think I could fully talk about what it was about until many other people had read it and talked about it with me. You know what I'm going to find so funny here is that that. I think from your answer, I can extrapolate that what you're saying is that people should also take credit for their lives, even if they are consequences that they might, or benefits, right? Like value they're providing that maybe they didn't intend to provide. We all humans should also take all of that credit for our lives as well. I love that. I love that. If that, yes, if I can do that too. <laughs> Cause it's like a book in a book and then. Totally. And it's the whole concept of a, an excellent author or writer. You're not filling out the, the plot and the character with so much detail that you don't leave room for the reader to see themselves in it and interpret it for themselves. Yeah. Because that's the whole point yeah. is every reader is going to have such a unique yeah. experience. And, and now in the, I'm going to jump back in on this oh, before we turn in, back to the most, but like, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's really important that like, uh, readers give your book even more shape because it's, mm-hmm. it would be impossible for one human brain. And I know it wasn't just your brain that wrote the Hazelwood, you know, you probably had wonderful editors at Flatiron or maybe you take full, you know, 100% credit, but like, obviously we're saying like three or four brains created this book, but really it's like the different connection making of the community that makes you like even see your characters differently and like make it matter to them in a way that you never could have intended. And that is like, that's what is, I found so beautiful about the Hazelwood is like all these takeaways that you can have that maybe you didn't mean, but you still get credit for because you made me feel certain things. And, and absolutely, you know, you could say a piece of art is like the product of one mind or one mind plus an editor or whatever the case may be, but it's also the product of my having read 500,000 books in my life, you know, and having kind of these mental conversations with things I've read, things I remember right or wrong from what I've read, you know, just all the places your, your brain is sent by other people's work. And it's, it's, yeah, no, no art like stands alone, which I think is exciting and very cool. Yeah. And I think this, I'm so excited because I think this is going to bring us back to the fairy tales again. It's this, you know, concept of unintentional allegory work that's happening in the book, um, which I've been wondering if you have a favorite fairy tale and, is there a fairy tale if given the opportunity that you would like to rewrite in your own words? Ooh, okay. So my favorites, I always go back to the 12 dancing princesses as one. And if you guys are, I'm sure most people are familiar with it, but essentially it's a King has 12 daughters and each morning their shoes are worn through and he's sick of the shoe mill. And he sends out a call for princes and other eligible men to come. And if they can figure out the secret of the shoes, they can marry one of the princesses. If not, they're beheaded. And about this stakes one. are pretty high for this and one. Yeah. And it, you know, no one ever, you know, there's just countless princes, I guess, in this land of princes, uh, to, to go and try their hand. And of course the man who wins, if I'm remembering right, is not a prince. You know, it's rarely the prince who wins in these, in these cases, it's someone clever. And he, uh, has an invisible cloak and he discovers that these women open a door in their bedroom at night, go down this long staircase Depending on the telling, they might like take a swan boat across a subterranean lake, walk through like a precious metal forest, and then dance all night with these you know underground princes. And it's essentially it's like a portal fantasy about hell, but like trapped inside a fairy tale. And that's just my jam, like straight through, right? Like portal <laughs> fantasy, 
scary underworld, fairy tale. It's got it all. I And it's been illustrated by wonderful illustrators, including Kay Nielsen, who does just gorgeous work with, with this story. I love it. So that kind of his his illustrations have always filled my head since reading his illustrated version when I was a kid. And my other favorite is a really weird one called the juniper tree. The juniper tree is wonderful because it squishes together tail types. It kind of starts with like a snow white setup and then the child is born and a stepmother comes in and she is driven so mad with jealousy of her stepson that she cuts his head off and cooks him into a stew. What kind of stew are you making, by the way? <laughs> it's not It's not relevant to this, you know. <laughs> I'm going to leave that to myself. Um, <laughs> and she cuts, cooks him into a stew. His father eats it. And as the father eats it, he keeps going, man, I have the feeling the stew is just for me. It's just so creepy. Mm-hmm. And then the boy's bones are buried by his sister. He becomes a bird. He sings this haunting, creepy fairy tale rhyme and ultimately drops a millstone on his stepmother's head. And I'm, I'm missing some beats, but it's like just allegorical <laughs> yeah. and I, I adore it. So you, it sounds like you, you've done so many different kinds of writing from journalism to you know, critiques to some form of ghostwriting, then the Hazelwood, which is one form of fiction, and now Tales from the Hinterland. Then the Night Country. Well, yeah, and the Night Country, but I meant both were forms of fiction. Now I'm moving on to the next, which is like rewriting fairy tales, or not rewriting, creating your own. How would you describe the different way your brain works to write a fairy tale versus to write fiction? Ooh, that's interesting. So I think with fiction, you have a really, really broad path to walk. Like there's almost any way you can go with it. Whereas with fairy tales, it's kind of a narrower road. Like you can look at something like a Grimm Brothers fairy tale, which has no explanation, no character development, no shades of gray of any kind. Um, all the way to the, I would say maybe like the other side of the spectrum would be something like a, oh, like Angela Carter. Hers are a lot richer um, or like a Lee Bardugo. Hers are very human and very warm in a way that the Grimm Brothers tales are more cold. And it's, it's, you know, there's definitely, it's a, it's a scale, but it's, it's narrower. Like you just don't have the same kind of freedom to be anachronistic um, it's just a very interesting writing challenge to kind of work in this, in this, within this field. I think what I struggled with most was how much, how grim to go with it and how modern to go with it. And I definitely erred more on the side of modern in terms of making the characters within it more human and less archetypal. Cause it turns out it's actually not as interesting as I thought it would be to read and write about archetypes. I love that as a younger reader, but now I do want like a denser experience. I know in this day and age that the young adult genre is going quite dark, but I was, and your book again is so fantastically dark, but did you ever with your editor, did you, you know, ever have moments where they're like, you know, you really need to bring this back in a little bit, like reel it in, like make it less dark. Oh gosh. I adore my editor. Never. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, in fact, it's so funny. Um, there are things in the night countries, uh, kind of finale, we'll say like the penultimate scene of that mm-hmm. 
I'm not sure if you guys have read the sequel yet. Yeah. It's, okay, so it's it's next lot. level. It's great. It's quite it's quite dark. <laughs> yeah. It's quite dark. And in the writing of it, I was like, this is where the narrative is going, and this feels good, and this is like what I want the story to be. And then once like the fervor had cooled, and I read it, I was like, ah, that is dark. <laughs> yeah. And my I remember my my dad read the book, and he called me, and he's like. I'm mad at you. And he had, there were like two points to that ending that he rightly was like, that is, that, that was so upsetting to me. Like as a reader, it just really? made me sad. Yes. And I don't want to say what they are. And I was like, interesting. It's so funny. Um, how dark I felt justified in going. Uh, and it is quite dark and, it, and I do feel like it's justified as far as the narrative goes, but Happily, my wonderful editor never asked me to pull back. YA is such a wonderful category. It can kind of expand. There's almost nothing you can't put in a YA novel. I say this and that you could probably you know, name 10 things and I'd be like, okay, well, maybe not that. But it just feels like the authors working in YA, there's so many exciting things happening. There's things I read about that I'm like, I never would have dreamed myself that I could put this in a YA book. But look, here it is. And it's fantastic. Yeah. As long as you have some hope. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so if you transport yourself back to um, four or five years ago when you're writing the query letter for the Hazelwood, what are you, are you like, I have a gangbusters book. This thing is going to kick ass. I know it. And you're like filled with confidence and you're like, yes. Or like, what, what is your mindset back then as, as I like been through, and I know listeners are so fascinated by like book publishing and so many different people like, I have a book in me. Like, now we're we're talking to you and it's like New York Times bestselling author and now you're working on the you know the third book that came out of this idea but like can you take us back to how you felt when you're like in the moment of like get going to try to sell it? Oh yeah. Okay, let me think. <laughs> you know, I do remember clearly thinking like this is a small dark specific and strange book and they say like they say to put everything you like in the book. And don't hold anything back because, like, more things will bubble up for the next one. Like, save nothing. So all the, like, funny, odd little, like, what-if questions I had boiling in my head, I, like, found this kind of – this book was, like, my vessel to put them in, right? Mm -hmm. And so it just kind of felt like this catalog of my own odd obsessions. And seeing it kind of find success has been this joyous discovery that my odd obsessions are clearly – and many other people's as well. And that's always the coolest part about meeting readers. Uh, Cause if you meet someone who's like, I loved your book, it's, you know, it's obviously it's good for the ego and it, it feels it's lovely, but it's also like, Oh, we like the same shit. Like what yeah, did you yeah. think for a kid? What's your favorite fairy tale? It, it feels like you just have this kind of brain trust community and, and there's just more, it's like when you're the nerdy kid in the cafeteria and you're like, I am alone and will always be alone. And no one is as you know shy as me. I was horribly shy as a child. Um, and then you get older and you meet all these wonderful, seemingly well-adjusted people that you grow to love and befriend. And you discover like, oh, wow, you were the nerdy kid in your cafeteria. And like, now we can all <laughs> talk about it. So it kind of feels like that, like finding people who, who connect with it. It's like, oh, everyone's a little weirder or a little more willing to embrace the weird, then I might've even given them credit for it. It's like a joy. 
Well, when I love that embracing your weird, when you embrace your weird, when you're writing in the Hazelwood and the night country, something that just struck both of us deeply was your amazing use of metaphor and simile. And you're just a really lovely wordsmith. And it's been a while since I've read a book where I was so regularly struck with these fantastic, unique metaphors. I mean, even earlier in the conversation when you were describing the the book that inspired the hinterland, you talked about the wind under your heart. And I'm like, what a glorious way of describing a sensation. And I, I felt what you meant when you said that. And I never would have thought to put it that way. So when you're writing... And it seems that it just comes naturally to you. But do you have a journal where you're like, oh my God, this is such a cool way of explaining something and you jot it down and then put it into your book or does it really come to you as you're writing? So the funny thing is, and and thank you so much for for your kind words, but the funny thing is when I was on the Hazelwood tour, somebody asked me at an event, um, you know, does this just come, like, does your writing, do you just kind of write it out or do you do a lot of editing later? And at the time I had been in edit so long that I couldn't remember. And I was like, you know what? I think it just comes out that way. Yeah, I think it pretty much like this is what it was when I wrote it. And I genuinely believe that. And then I sat down to write The Night Country and I was like, oh my God, so much editing goes into this. Yeah. Um, and I think one lesson I learned, uh, one of the things I did as a freelancer was I wrote kind of comedy pieces for Spark Life, uh, which is you know pop culture, funny pop culture site for teens. And when you're writing like a joke, if you go with your first joke, idea it's always bad you have to like push through to the second and then like maybe even the third idea and I think with like a good metaphor sometimes the first one is like cold as ice right like you have to like push past it so it's like a matter of pushing past the the easy one and like thinking right yeah like like the peanut butter and jelly analogy hey but you were on the fly We were just speaking. Ooh. That was the first and one. And I actually honestly thought it was good. So it's I don't know like what this is about me. I love peanut butter and jelly. And I was like, that's right. That, that strikes me. I'm better at you know, writing than talking. Like, I think, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can muddle through a conversation. But when I'm writing, I can really write a good, you know. <laughs> All right. So the penultimate question. Uh, in the Hazelwood, because that's one we're focusing on here for our listeners. Do you have a favorite scene Preferably, preferably one that's not at the very end <laughs> to right. give away. But is there one that you are like, "Ooh, I love that one," and that really came out the way I wanted it to? Yes. Okay. So there's two scenes in that book, and I won't reveal what, but they're scenes that I rewrote like 40 times a piece, and I feel like I can't even <laughs> look at them anymore. <laughs> um, but the the sequence that I love best, and I don't I don't think this is too much of a spoiler to say that. The Hazelwood, the estate where Alice's grandmother, this reclusive author, lives, she does, Alice gets there, right? Like, my heroine gets there. It's around the midpoint of the book. And I didn't know what she was going to find there until I, as a writer, got to that scene. And when I figured it out, I was like, oh, this is going to be so fun to write. And the sequence in which she is in the Hazelwood stands as like my the most fun to write just like a total joy to write and I think it sounds on the page like it did in my head which is always oh so yeah it's fine I just yeah, think of like the Pinterest hashtag nailed it where it's like this beautiful perfect <laughs> cupcake and then this like heinous squashed one so in my head is like the perfect cupcake and then like on the page the first draft is like this deflated sad melted cupcake oh yeah I you know that scene for me I'm like I did it it's like it's like the cupcake so yeah that's uh that's my favorite. Speaking of cupcakes. Speaking of cupcakes, <laughs> we, we actually, this is the most important question of the entire interview. So we feel like we've warmed you up for it. 
Melissa Albert, what is your favorite cookie? <laughs> okay. Um, there is, I, oh gosh, I want to like give you the exact recipe so everyone can make it because oh, it's, okay. it's cookie everyone needs right now. We can share this on the Inky Phoenix. Yeah. It is, I'm looking it up right now, Nutella stuffed brown butter chocolate chip cookies oh, from a blogger called oh, Ambitious yeah. Kitchen. D- delightful. I mean, brown butter anything and then add Nutella. Nutella I mean, you could add Nutella to anything and it would be delightful for the most part from my experience. Um, but as a follow-up, oh. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to choose a cookie from like the standard cookie list, you know, like chocolate chip, oatmeal raisin, snickerdoodle... Um, oatmeal raisin like what would your favorite be I mean you know chocolate chip okay okay see I told you what what about you guys I'm a chocolate chip girl and Kate is a I'm I'm hardcore raisin yeah how embarrassing I mean it's like hearty it's like a meal I like I like the meal and a cookie aspect of oatmeal raisin thank you and cover on with a chocolate chip Thank Melissa, you for being it's been, charitable. It's, it's, it's eaten up a lot of airtime on free cookies, my defense of oatmeal raisin cookies. It is hard to defend because every picture from a, a work conference meeting that has a plate of cookies, you know, like chocolate chip, oatmeal raisin, and maybe sugar cookies, the oatmeal raisins are the only ones left. So there's like a verifiable proof out there that oatmeal like raisin. ice cream and it's just like the chocolate yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? You know, Art house movies aren't for everyone either, okay? Like, you know, they're special and the community that likes them protects them, Melissa. So I feel good about it. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for taking time to chat with us and and for being our book pick. It's so great. It's so wonderful. Thank you, Melissa. All right, take care, everyone. And that, my friends, is happily ever after once upon a time there were oh are we phoenixing it we're going right into the next one we are reborn once upon i just from the ashes i just you said happily ever after and it made me think of your tattoo so i was just reading your tattoo in reverse oh. once upon a time happily ever after it's there were, true i do have was both of those tattooed on my body um it's a wrap, you guys. Thank you for that's listening wrap, to that's us. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. We are produced by Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio. You can find us in all of the places you find all of the things, like on Gmail at freecookiespodcast at gmail.com, on Instagram at freecookiespodcast. Don't forget to follow the Inky Phoenix now that you've heard the insight into Catherine's brain about why she named it that. Like, that deserves a follow. It's not too late to join us on the Hazelwood. You can order a copy from our indie bookseller, which is Bicycle. Blue Bicycle Books. They're here in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Just go to their website. You will see a little thing on the side that says The Inky Phoenix, and you can order signed copies. Melissa, you'll get a book plate that goes with your book, and if you use code FREECOOKIES, you get 10% off the title. Okay, but this is really important, what we're about to ask of cookies monsters that's what we call cookie monsters <laughs> okay this is actually really important this is before the time when we give away all of the money right yes we have a, a task we need at least one person to complete and, and don't ha- let the bystander effect come into play here where you all think someone else is going to do it it's true someone needs to support us because if you listen to last week's episode you know that the most recent review which came in right after free cookies for president which all right all right all right but the one after that was the one star that couldn't get through a minute of this and, and, the, and the title is JFC, which we have learned means Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, which feels intense. And, you know, maybe it was the minute of, about me talking how I need to poop when I go into a bookstore. And maybe they didn't think that was, you know, highbrow. 
Maybe they thought that was that content was not as worthwhile as they were expecting. Perhaps, but and that's okay because rate and review the in show. Solidarity. Rate and review the show on Apple iTunes. People. We would appreciate it, and thank you for listening. And stick around for the next few minutes because that's where the magic happens. The ten thousand dollars will go to Ashi Budig. Bye, everyone. 